Luke 15, again, is a, an especially famous chapter of Scripture, one of the best-known, best-loved chapters of Scripture, and of all three parables in this chapter. Of course, the last one, traditionally called the parable of the prodigal son, is the high point. It's often viewed as Jesus' greatest parables of all of them. In fact, one preacher says it's the most famous short story ever written. I think we can identify and agree with that. It declares the beauty of experiencing a relationship of such generosity and such love that it can change any life. We've come under that. So the theme that unites the three parables is a beautiful theme. It's that of something very valuable and very precious to its owner being lost. And then the ecstatic joy, unbridled joy of that valuable precious thing being found. And in fact, you go from one sheep in a hundred to one coin in ten to now in the last parable, one son in two. And you feel this energy intensifying because the stakes have gotten higher. And so the exhilaration and the overflowing, abundant thanksgiving and joy of recovering this one, it just, it, it's far and beyond really the ability to, to explain it. You, you have to see it, and that's why it's this pictorial story. In fact, one commentator says of this parable that it's the gospel within the gospel, because there's so many incredible gospel truths that they're beautifully pictorially set forth to get your heart today. And so let's read together. Well, I'll read, you get to listen. Let's read the parable of the prodigal son, verse 11 of chapter 15. But we got to read the first two verses first. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Parable of the sheep, parable of the coin, and then verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me, and he divided the property between them. Now, many days Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him and the son said to him father I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and Shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers, flowers fade, but this good word endures forever. Thanks be to God. So last week we said uh, that this group of three parables answers why Jesus conducts his ministry as he conducts his ministry. Luke 15, one and two shows us that it's Jesus's apologetic, his defense, his explanation to the Pharisees and the scribes the Pharisees and the scribes observed that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. And the sense is not just once, it wasn't an odd experience, rather that was the regular constant pattern of Jesus's ministry. It's just what was happening. These public, notorious, shameful sinners that everybody knew about 
gravitated to Jesus. And this was a constant irritant, frustration, offense even, to the Pharisees and the scribes. So they regularly, constantly grumbled, bad-mouthed Jesus saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And see this, this man, as they say that, it's a derogatory statement, it's a slur, this guy. And it just sticks in their crawl that he receives, meaning he takes pleasure in. Like he, he he shows goodwill toward these tax collectors and sinners, these untouchables in the community, and even that he eats with them. That is, he welcomes them to a table, he shares his life with them, and he extends grace to them. So because of this constant complaint that Jesus is fielding, Jesus tells the three parables. And so this also means that his primary audience is in fact those who are critiquing him, the Pharisees and the scribes. And we need to keep this in mind. It's the hook of the parable. It converts the parable into being this gushy, sentimental picture, which it is, but also being this shocking parable that catches everybody's attention. You see, it's not just a parable of one son, it's a parable of two sons. Jesus expressly states that to the Pharisees and the scribes when he says there was a man who had two sons. It's a parable that moves very close to allegory in that the younger son represents a group, the the tax collectors and sinners, and the older son represents a group, the Pharisees and the scribes. So it's much more accurate to say it's a parable of two sons or even the parable of the prodigal sons, plural. And Jesus is illustrating two ways to be lost. Not just one, two ways to be lost. And part of the value and the captivating nature of the parable is he invites us to see ourselves in the characters and through the characters. Do you struggle with a form of lostness today that may look like the younger or look like the older? But even better than this title of the parable of the prodigal sons, we really should call it the parable of the prodigal father. You see, it's the father who really is the central character of the parable. It all revolves around him. It's his way of responding and acting. It's the father's prodigal profligate in the sense of extravagant, no holds barred, lavish love for both lost sinners. That is the theme. That's the chief theme. And in this allegorical type parable, the father clearly represents God. He represents God the father, if we can believe it. That God the father would be like this. And so it's Jesus' way of saying, you ask me why I conduct my ministry like I do. Well, I conduct my ministry like I do because I'm just reflecting the heart of the God who sent me. And the heart of the God who sent me is one of abundant grace and undeserved favor to lost people. That's what God is like. I'm just trying to show you what God is like. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes are looking at him, what's underneath their critiques are saying, but that kind does not deserve it. They don't deserve you to treat them that way. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, I know. You're exactly right. They don't. But that's the grace of God. It's undeserved. And what you need to see, and you can't see it, is that you don't deserve it either. But I'm coming after you. And so this understanding of what God is like and how we relate to God is just pulls apart from all other ideas of religion in our world. It pulls apart from how our world functions. And so, so easy it seeps into our bloodstream that God can't be like that. And so we need a shocking parable to arrest our attention again and say, no, see through it, this is the heart of God. A God of seeking grace to people who just don't deserve it, like us. Jesus says a man had two sons. And one day the younger son approaches his father and says to him, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. If you can imagine what that little meeting was like. Because he's asking his father, Father, go ahead and divide up my share of the inheritance. And so we think of how hurtful and disrespectful the kind of sorrow that causes to well up in the father. In effect, he says, Father, I'm, I'm ready for you to go ahead and die so I can get what's coming to me. I want your stuff and I don't want you. Move up the calendar, die, and give me your stuff. And then we think of how destructive it is. Again, there are two sons. Deuteronomy said that the older son would receive a double portion of the inheritance. So if there are two sons, the younger son's gonna receive a third of the estate. So to give the younger son a third of the estate, now the father has to sell off land. Land held in the family for generations. I mean, that's his major capital, and he has to do a quick sale, which probably means he didn't get what it was worth. It's like if we needed to sell our house quick, we'd have to drop the price. And this just disrupts the rest of the estate. And so it's also important that Jesus calls the property here literally the father's life. The first use of property in your text is a different word. This word is the word for life. It's a strong word. It kind of brings to the fore what's going on. The father's selling off his life. Since land was just not an asset, it was something of, of where he belonged. You remember God assigned property that said, this property is a symbol that you belong to me. He was tied to the land and his name and standing and identity and livelihood was wrapped up in the land. He was selling his land. He was selling his life. 
And the younger son's looking at him and saying, look, I want what your life is good for, for me. And then as quickly as he can, the younger son gathers up everything he gets and he heads out, like heads out into a far country. And the idea is he turns everything into cash. He casts off any anchor to home. He cuts all ties and he goes away to a far away country intending never to return. Full stop, new life. And in a shame and honor culture, all of this would be so humiliating, so shameful to the family, such a tarnishing of the family's reputation in the community, shameful for a younger son, despicable, unconscionable, and then for the whole family, and especially for the father. What happened? And so Jews liquidating assets and moving to other lands was common in that time. However, this isn't that. This is a probably 17-year-old boy, self-absorbed, just wanting to do his own thing and live his own way. He longs for independence and freedom. Even if it cost disgrace and hurt to the family and and. In that time, there were stories of this happening. Like, people were aware of this dreadful thing happening. So the boy gets to the far country, and in the far countries, he's able to call his own shots. The younger son immediately, autonomous over his time and his priorities, he immediately gets to squandering his property in reckless living. He spends his money right and left, he's living high on the hog, he's busy being the big man, the life of the party, buying all the drinks and gratifying all his lusts and desires and fantasies, plunging into this life of out of control debauchery. And judging by what the older son says later, it may be that the family has to endure rumors of his scandalous living drifting back home. As maybe the older son knows, he's going with prostitutes. The shame. Well, then two disasters occur. Two disasters strike him in the far country. Better, God pursues him through two disasters. First, he runs out of money. It doesn't seem like it took very long either. He soon finds himself flat broke. And then second, a severe famine comes upon the land. So the younger son begins to be in need. And evidently, all his good friends forget him and abandon him. They use him and discard him. And so he finds himself alone and in need. And the only way he can survive, looking everywhere, you have to, idea, you have to get the idea that he's looked everywhere. <laughs> the only way he can survive is to hire himself out to, which is literally glue himself to or attach himself to, uh, a citizen of that country, which would be a Gentile man. And we know this because this man was breeding pigs. And God's law designated pigs as unclean animals, as you know. A Jew couldn't eat them. A Jew could not touch them. 
without becoming unclean. And yet that's the only job of all the options out there that he could find to labor such a dishonorable, distasteful job. But it's even worse. The rabbis would say, cursed be the man who breeds swine. Cursed be him. And so he's really gone to the bottom of the barrel and it gets even worse because he's so hungry he longs to eat the fodder he was feeding the pigs but he's not allowed to. It's rock bottom. The pigs are better off than he is. The pigs are worth more than he is. It's this really sad state of affairs that says, it's a very sad statement, no one gave him anything. Utterly abandoned. It's a picture of what sin wants to do for us. To crave God's stuff and reject God leads here. Sin promises freedom and fulfillment. No reins, no boundaries. But it gives bondage and emptiness. And you see it played out. However, right here in this low spot, because God goes after us in our low places. Severe mercy brings us to a desperate place. And in that spot, he changes. God's severe mercy opens up his eyes. Verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, when he had a moment of sanity, self-awareness, the lights turn on to his condition, which there's nothing natural about that for a fallen man. When he comes to himself, it's a Jewish idiom for repent. When he repents. And so we learn something about repentance. So the first thing we learn is that repentance begins with having our eyes open to the misery and consequences of sin, that it's a pigsty and that's not a good place to be. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread and I perish with hunger, a hunger I can't satisfy. Second, it's, and this is the heart of it, it's relational, repentance is relational. The heart of his repentance is, I will arise and go to my father. Like I broke off all relationship with my father. I closed the door, never intending to return. I burned the bridges and ran away. I just want to go home. I want to go back to my father. It's the heart of repentance. Third, it recognizes sin as first of all against God before it's against man. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Psalm 51, David, adultery and murder says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, I committed adultery against her. I murdered him. It's tragically evil, but I can't imagine what I've done to you. Fourth, it recognizes we have no leg to stand on, no bargaining chip with God, no good record to leverage in our treatment. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, hired servants, mystheos is the 
lowest class of worker that they knew. It was the lowest tier. They lived apart from the family, no connection with the family. Just as need arose, they would be contracted for day labor. Just make me that. I don't have a leg to stand on to be your son. Just make me that and let me pay off my debt bit by bit if I ever can. And the good is it's deep humility. I have nothing, but the bad is, let me do something to become accepted again. And we have that lurking feeling that we can kind of make up for it, balance the scales somehow. But Jesus shows the Father will have none of that, none of that. And when we see this, it's this wonderful praise that the God accepts us by his grace, not by the caliber and perfection of our repentance. It's always going to be a little jumbled up in a sinner. And so the younger son arises and returns to his father. He goes back home. And you get the idea that the father is looking for him. He's searching for his son because he sees him off in the distance, a long way off at the outskirts of the village. His eyes are fixed on the horizon and they have been so for months. And he sees him and he feels this compassion for him. And you know it's my favorite Greek word. It's blank nizomai. It comes from intestines, internal organs. He sees his son and he has this gut pain. We know that, he's moved with mercy that that gets him in his stomach, his internal organs turn inside out. And grief and heartbrokenness and empathy and pity and mercy for his younger son. This boy that he loves so much that's just dirty and tattered clothing and barefoot and skinny as a rail and broken down and so, so ashamed and walking in front of all the townspeople back home. And it's the heart of the story, a father who has such a heart. Can we believe that God has such a heart? And so the father doesn't wait. Like he's like the good shepherd that seeks the sheep, the lost sheep, the woman who seeks after the lost coin. He takes the initiative. Nobody has to tell him to do anything. He races out of the house towards his son, still while he's a long way off. Let me get to you first. And you recall the younger son had publicly humiliated and shamed his father and his family. And so what a community like that would expect for such a dishonorable son, even if he were to return, is what they'd call a kazaza ceremony. It's the shunning ceremony, a cutting off, literally. What the father should have done is walk out to his son and take a clay pot, hold it in front of his son, and break it. And he'd do that before the scorn and mocking of the villagers, essentially saying, you're now cut off from your family and your people. Leave. Leave. There's no anchor for you. And that's how shame would be covered. But see, this father will have none of that. It's alien to his thinking. He runs 
out to him. This dignified landowner and such men would never run because you'd have to hike up your robes and bare your legs. You just didn't do that. You were a dignified, you're the man that everybody stood up to, to receive. It was regarded as shameful to do that, but he doesn't care. He runs out to him, embraces him, literally falls on his neck. A good southern man falls on his neck. He kisses him. A mother might be permitted to do this, but the father, the head of the family, no, never in a million years. But this man with the heart of splank nitsomai, he does it. And you got to see what the father is doing And Sinclair Ferguson says it so well, it's that the father is deflecting the younger son's shame. And so the son is receiving the shame around him. The father takes the shame and the humiliation on himself. So you ask, what's the cost of the younger son's return? Does it cost? Is God just a benevolent deity who's just going to forgive sins? Does he have to do anything? Does he just tolerant of our wickedness? And we see in this story, no, absolutely not. Someone has to pay for a just and holy God. So who pays? Well, we see the father paying the cost here, taking the shame from off the shoulders of the younger son and putting it onto himself. In the gospel, it's not just that our guilt is covered, it's that our shame is covered from all that that makes us feel so awful. It's covered. The humiliation of sin is covered. And the younger son starts up his confession, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father won't let him go any further. He cuts him off, barking orders. Orders like this, bring him a change of clothes, those beautiful clothes we have saved up for him, my best robe that mark his elevated position, and put a ring on his finger, that signet ring I have in my room that's a seal of the family, the sign of membership. Put it on his finger, give him some shoes for his feet a symbol of a free man, not a slave. Kill the fattened calf we've set apart for a holiday, a special occasion down the road because this is the best day I could ever imagine. And let's throw a party. Let's have music and dancing and feasting. This is the day of all days that I've longed for for so long. And so he asks, why, why? Because the father says this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. The town expected a kazaza ceremony where the father would say, you're dead to me. And the father says, oh no, you are resurrected from the dead to me. You've been utterly lost and now miraculously against my wildest dreams, you are found. And we take that in its fullest spiritual sense. You were eternally condemned and you were alive. You were utterly lost and you were found. And now we turn to the other son and it's the twist in the story. In a sense, everything we just said unveils his heart. And the Pharisees need to, need to feel that. 
And maybe our Pharisee hearts need to feel that. He comes in from the fields, this older son, and he draws near to the house, and he hears party, music, and dancing. So instead of racing into the house to rejoice in what's going on, he stops dead still in the field outside the house, and he calls over another servant, and he asks of that servant, what in, you know, what is going on? And the servant like excitedly says, your brother has come. He's, your father's killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. And we might expect, because he is the older son, utter relief and joy to launch into the house because he is a son of such a father. But instead, the older son gets blisteringly angry and refuses to go in. And we go, yeah, I get that. I get that. I mean, what the younger brother did was just off the charts. He shamed the family, busted the estate, ran through his shares, sowing his wild oats, and now things don't work out for him. He crawls back home. I mean, yeah, that's about right. I would do the same thing. I totally sympathize with you, elder brother. I mean, and you butchered the calf to receive him back? Like, that's how you receive him? And the father's reaction just feels so wrong, and the older son's reaction just feels so right. So in his anger, the older son refuses to join the father into the celebration, and the servant goes in and reports it to the father. Like, he has to go in. And just imagine the atmosphere in this celebration, this feast, this party, like it instantly becomes heavy and tense, like the joy is sucked out of the room and shame fills the space and everyone stops eating and the music quits and the dancing ceases and there's stillness and everybody's just kind of looking around very awkwardly and the older son publicly shames the father by refusing to enter. Like, you just don't do that. An older son doesn't do that to his father. I mean, the fifth commandment, you don't shame your father. And I love how Ferguson says, I can't begin to tell you what an extraordinary thing it is the father leaves the house again. He does it again. No favoritism. He does it again. Just like with the younger, the father, this dignified head of family, hikes his robes and races out of the house, runs to the older son. He's deflecting the shame again. He absorbs the cost inflicted by the elder son, and the sense is he urges him and treats him over and over again. It's an imperfect verb. He's arguing the son into the house, convincing the son into the house to join in the celebration. He takes the initiative again. He seeks out the older son who's sunk in a lostness he's not aware of. Would you enter the house? Would you come home? Would you repent? Come in. And we quickly realize the gravity of the older son's condition. At first glance, it's hard to see, but the more you settle in, the more you see it. Our hearts are deceptive beyond all things. Who can understand it? before this loving and gracious entreaty to enter the party, he just unloads this dump truck. He just unloads this pent-up flood of bitter resentment and anger against his father. It's been there. Now he has the opportunity. The floodgates are open. He says, look, these many years I have served for you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet 
You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And it just lays his heart so bare for us. In his heart of hearts, his whole orientation of life is he regards himself as a servant, not a son. He's doing his duty to get what he wants. He doesn't know anything about a relationship with his father. He doesn't realize that everything already belongs to him. It's not in his mindset that he is an heir of the whole estate, but he thinks he has to earn it. He disassociates himself quite easily from his father and his family, this son of yours. I'm not a part of this thing. He thinks the good life is just getting a miserable little young goat to celebrate with whom? With his father? No, for with his friends. Not with his father. The older son, yes, stayed home and worked while the younger son went off and went wild. But the older son doing the respectable thing while the younger son did the dishonorable thing, yes. However, in his heart of hearts, the older son is the very same as the younger son. Is two ways to be lost. Neither knew nor loved the father. Neither wanted anything to do with the father. Neither had a relationship with the father. Both of them wanted the stuff of the father without the father. Both rejected and shamed the father. Both were out for me, me, mine. We can be lost through licentious living or we can be lost through legalistic living. It's the same. And so the twist in the story is that you can be physically close to the Father and your heart still be miles away from the Father. And Jesus is saying, Pharisees and scribes, you can be performing all your acts of righteousness to the letter, but in your heart be even worse off than the tax collectors and the sinners. Because it's them who are drawing near to me, you are drawing away from me. Your good work can be a barrier to ever having a relationship with me. Jesus is saying your approval can be completely derailed by saying I have no need, I did my part, my father owes me. And Jesus is saying that's just not how it works. That's not how a relationship with God is. So in his abundant grace, the father calls the older son. He says, son, please receive your sonship Accept that you're my son. You don't earn that. You are that. It's grace. And furthermore, all I have is already yours. You are my heir. You can have anything you want. Know who you are. Desire to be a son. Welcome your brother like me. Show my heart, my joy, the family likeness toward a lost brother. This is the family trait. This is why you need to enter the house and come home. When you know you're a member of the family by grace, you willingly extend grace To enter the house is to accept his sonship. Sonship. And so Jesus ends the story there. And we don't know how he responds. Does he enter or does he stay planted in the field? And Jesus asks us how we respond. Where we see ourselves today. Will we enter the house? Will we come home? And also we just gotta recall that Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. At the end of that road stands a cross and he knows it's there. 
should an elder brother treat a younger brother who's gone away from the family? What should have the elder brother done for his younger brother who was so confused and rebellious? Had he been a true elder brother, well, he would have gone after him. But we see Jesus, our true elder brother, does do that for us. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was joy. And that's the cost. Jesus can be the true elder brother. He was made so by being dirty, becoming dirty and naked, alone, rejected, cursed, at the bottom of the barrel, rock bottom, hell itself. Hell itself, utterly abandoned. No one meeting his needs under the judgment of God so that he could pay for all of our guilt and every last drop of our shame and deflect it onto himself and undo it such that the gospel is the Father loves you so much and so overflowing with grace towards those precious ones he has lost that he sends his beloved son to go to the lowest spot to take it all down upon himself, absorb the cost so that he can bring us home. Bring us home. And so for the believer who is halted by sins of the past and we think that we can never be fully reinstated, the gospel is that it's covered and God has deflected it onto himself for the delight of having you home in freedom, not in slavery. And so J.I. Packer, if you want to know and make, understand what someone thinks of Christianity, take note of how they regard God as their father. And so today for you, do you see yourself in your innermost thinking and feeling that you are a son or daughter of the Father by grace through the matchless sacrifice of the beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And might you live in that. And if you don't know about that, receive this as a call to come home. Amen. Let's stand.